I'll be happy knowing that I put this in a document so that in five years' time, when we're in the when we're in the the gulag, <laughs> well, at least said we said something. <laughs> Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. It's good to be back, joined by my mate stranded in Prison Island on the other side of the world, growing a a lockdown ISO beard, however you wanted to uh, phrase it. Jules, what's going on, my man? Lockdown Island. Is uh, Is that Australia's new name, is it? Yeah, Lockdown Island, Prisoner Island. It's uh, what would you call it? <laughs> uh, the land, land of zero, man. The land, land of zero. The, the land of zero. Fortra- no. Fortress Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. The, the certainly the media expectations are that we're going to be in lockdown for months, and that we're basically not going to be able to open until we hit some magic vaccine number. And uh, yeah. Really do hope magic vaccine numbers are are actual magic vaccine numbers. Um, are you are you going to stay out of lockdown? You guys are free now, aren't you? Well, that's the thing. So we have at least seventy five percent of people over the age of twelve who have been who have have at least one dose, and we have cases ticking up again after being fully reopened. So that. The Delta variant is here, as they as they tell us. And uh, but our government doesn't really seem keen to put us back into lockdown. It actually waived, interestingly, and maybe this is something I disagree with, but it waived the requirement for positive COVID tests to isolate. So if you test positive for COVID, there's no government order telling you you have to stay at home for ten days, which is interesting. But I don't know how much longer that will last. Hospitalizations are ticking up slightly. They tell us that most people in the ICU and in the hospital beds haven't been vaccinated. Um, so the vaccines are still working, but they don't seem to be working at preventing transmission that much. So it seems like I think what you have to do if, if, if you want to know what your country is going to look like when most people uh, are vaccinated is you look at Israel. Israel has been leading the way in vaccination targets and now they're seeing a surge of COVID cases. So obviously it's not really helping transmission. It's helping reduce chance of severe outcomes, but look at Israel and that's, that's your future. So it's in some sense, it's pretty bleak because it looks like we're going to keep having waves of COVID and how your government handles it is going to depend on where you're from. Well, it's a nice, uh, <laughs> it's a nice way to start the podcast. <laughs> nice COVID start. will never end. Yeah, oh. that's been a depressing realization over the past week. Is that it's it's not really going to ever end. You're going to have constant waves. But think about it. You've but had like, if the constant waves don't kill people, then well, that's the thing, and and don't overwhelm and the like system. Some people are just going to have to die, and <laughs> you know, yeah. And well, you know, I, I, if you're uh, counting waves, if you're counting waves from the Spanish flu, what would be up to wave four hundred and something of of Spanish yeah. flu or, or the like, remnants of the flu? 
And if we start catching it, start getting vaccinated against it, we'll start to build some sort of immunity to it. So, but like, I don't know. I, um, it's a bit bleak. We don't have to belabor it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, in other news, Rob, I've been considering alternative employment recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know how well this musician thing pays, but <laughs> despite this, I've, I've been examining my options. And I think, you know, when you start jumping on Seek and these kinds of things, uh-huh. obviously all the algorithms find out and they all tell each other and yeah. start uh, start plotting some plans. And uh I've been getting targeted by the federal police, actually. Oh, the big dogs! Yeah, they're, uh, they're you know, could I want a could I want a job in surveillance? Oh, uh, is what, oh. Is the, very the topical. So maybe maybe they saw how passionate <laughs> I was about uh, CCP um, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and they asked me. They asked me, "Do I feel like I'm someone who can blend in?" Mm, that's what the definitely not the with face, that beard. That's what the, the federal police uh, Facebook ad. So they're hiring, which is um, interesting, and they're probably hiring uh, for a reason that uh, for that Rob wants to talk about. You see, so Rob's yes. been sending me some aggro messages in the middle of the night on Facebook, <laughs> which is well, this- also known as our our further sp- our speaking points for this week. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Rob, you're a bit stressed about this uh, this new initiative by the federal government, federal requiring government. people That's to right. have to submit 100 points of identification uh, in order to have a social media account. So you're, right. you're a bit, so have, you're a bit stressed. We have two about this. two two very troubling laws uh, potentially going that are going to be passed in Australia. We have, yeah, the first one, as Jules mentions, the government's going to ask for ID for you to be able to access Facebook in a bid to uh, clamp down on uh, online bullying. And the second one is the Identify and Disrupt Bill, um, which is going to give uh, heightened surveillance powers and potentially the ability for uh, these government agencies, the federal police, uh, and uh, another agency to uh, to edit and monitor online information, which is very, very dystopian. But the first one is a video that I'm going to play for everyone now. A radical plan to crack down on social media abuse is being considered by the federal government. For more, Nine's Oliver Haig joins us live in Adelaide. Ollie, how will it work? Well, good morning. Essentially, it will work the same as a passport. Australians forced to submit 100 points of identification like their driver's licence or passport when using social media accounts like Facebook and Twitter. Now, police would have access to those social media accounts and it's all part of a crackdown on online abuse. Now, users could be liable for defamation suits or even criminal prosecution. And it's all part of a plan hoping to deter people from engaging in bad behaviour. Now, the recommendations were handed down by a federal parliamentary inquiry. They're reforms that are being considered by the Morrison government, with the chairman saying there is merit to remove to remove uh, the veil of being anonymous. Layla? So basically, as you heard, the government's going to be standing at the door uh, with any tech platform, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and going to allow you to, and, and going to force you to submit ID. It's going to add some regulation into this industry and the idea is going to it's going to clamp down on antisocial behavior but it's just it's terrifying to me Jules and, and something that's 
been keeping me up at night just because it's it's now the idea that the promise of the internet, open communication, free discourse, free of government censorship, free of government uh, involvement is going to be turned over uh, to the government only 20 years after that promise um, has been allowed to uh, to live. And it's it's why it's concerning to me is because it's it seems to have bipartisan support. Uh, um, we'll see if it, if, it, if it eventually gets passed and in what form it takes. But at least the proposed legislation that, you, you know, it's – it's this handing over of power that I think has become, you know, potentially acceptable and justified in a pandemic. Maybe you want to, you know, hand over some powers to the government in a pandemic. But that same relationship with government has now been extended to areas that have nothing to do with the pandemic. And so how many of these how many of these draconian powers are going to be handed over to the government? And as soon as you do, there's no chance that it's ever going to they're ever going to relinquish that power and give it back. So that's got me pretty fired up. And now potentially Jules will be that person at the uh, at the door telling you uh, who can be allowed on and 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 and, and who can't. <laughs> I don't know. I've just got a feeling me and the federal police aren't going to be a cultural fit. You know? <laughs> I, I don't know how much reciprocal synergy there's going to be, you know? Who knows? Uh, there's a couple of things to unpack there, Rob. So I, I reckon before we get too distilled into some of these concepts around bipartisan support for security measures, which seems to be the norm this idea of um, gaining draconian powers out of crisis situations. I think we should talk about that. But I think there's a there's an aspect of of this this law and this this these forms of regulation that you're missing there. And it's it's scam bots, right? So that would potentially the part of the reason why you might want to bring in this requirement of having ID mm-hmm. is so you can't create all these bots. Right. Mm-hmm. Now uh, we already know in elections now uh, part of the security threat to these elections is these constructions of all these bots mm-hmm. um, that make uh, create their own like echo chambers and make it look like they really support this initiative, you know, or, you know, people are saying that, you know, all oh, the Russians were creating uh, right. f- fundamentalist, uh, fundamentalist uh, leftists. Islam protests. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And all these different groups, kinds of stuff. Right. And just, just, just yeah. and, and creating this illusion that there are actually these groups of people who believe these thing, who are actually right. viewing this content. And so this way they're able to, it's like it's like this propaganda ecosystem with all these fake accounts, right? But there's also so there's that which I'd love to learn more about actually because it. <laughs> but then there's also just just your regular scam bots, right? So I pretty I pretty you didn't so get I've scammed, got, did you? <laughs> well, well uh, funnily enough, I, I did, and um, I uh, yeah, it's actually a pretty funny story. But I so. <coughs> You know, I obviously play music in a band, Picket Palace. We were doing our first shows after the uh, after the biggest lockdown in, in Melbourne ended earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. Shows sell out. You can't have that many people at the shows anymore, so the venues aren't really giving you door spots. So you normally, normally when I play a show, if I want some mates to come, my mum or whatever, I, I put people on the, on the door. Now, we weren't having like any door spots or just one. And I met some girl and I wanted her to come and uh, we were out of tickets. So I went on the Facebook page for the the, the event <laughs> to my own concert 
And uh, I bought tickets off what was actually a scam bot <laughs> and got rolled like thirty dollars. So, fished. I don't know. Maybe maybe I've got a stake in this, Rob. Maybe I, maybe I want protection. I want, I want ID checks on all maybe these. Maybe that's Facebook why they're accounts. recruiting you, mate. You get, <laughs> they know you've been personally victimized by anonymity online. But that mm. is the argument that it's going to crack down on anonymity. Uh, anonymity. T say that five times really quickly. Um, but you know, the counter argument is that whistleblowers hide behind that anonymity to speak truth to power. So there is an argument that you know, we don't need uh, to have people's ideas online. I don't know which of those arguments holds more weight and which has more power. I just know that as soon as you take something that was had such a you know, beautiful promise, the internet of open dis- open discourse, open expression, a decentralized system, and now you hand it, you turn you turn the keys over to a to a government force that's not going to give it back. I think it's I think it's a sad day. Does it potentially create the opportunity for there to be like a renegade movement in the internet, you know, where because Facebook, Google, Apple, these kinds of institutions become so large mm. uh, that they're forced into bed with governments that mm. people people adopt a new approach to the internet, right? Well, that is actually that, raises is that, is that yeah. you know, and I and I wonder whether you know, I mean, I if I was trying to be edgy, I'd probably look into things like the underground internet movement, and you know, this maybe there's people out there hoping to construct new, 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 more open platforms and stuff, right? Well, that's right. So that's why uh, you know people in. <clears throat> cryptocurrency and de- decentralized systems and you know encrypted apps like signal and telegram and um and things like that have you know have been pushing for it and they've said that all this you know this marriage between government officials and tech companies has uh, justified the need for decentralized systems even further but what the point you raise is really interesting is it is it it's not that the government has really crack down too heavily on speech, uh, you know, in America and the Western world per se, but it's that there's been, uh, you know, tech censorship or more like content moderation on platforms um, uh, that's that's been doing the role that the censors, that the government censors would have loved to do but couldn't because all the confirmation, all the communication is online, which actually leads me to the second, you know, disturbing trend on like government censorship online, which is, um, the U.S. government has been in talks with big tech companies in its crackdown on misinformation. So here's uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Well, I would say first it shouldn't come as any surprise that we're in regular touch with social media platforms, just like we're in regular touch with all of you and your media outlets about uh, areas where we have concern, uh, information that might be useful, information that may or may not be interesting to your viewers. You all make decisions just like the social media platforms make decisions, even though they're a private sector company and different, but just as an example. So we are ma- regularly making sure social media platforms are aware of the latest narratives dangerous to public health that we and many other Americans seeing are seeing across all of social and traditional media. And we work to engage with them to better understand the enforcement of social media platform policies. So let me give you an example just to illustrate it a little bit. Uh, the false narrative that remains active out there about COVID-19 vaccines causing infertility, something we've seen out there flowing on the internet quite a bit in other places as well, which has been disproven time and time again. This is troubling. 
uh, but a persistent narrative that we and many have seen, and we want to know that the social media platforms are taking steps to address it. That is inaccurate, false information. If you are a parent, you would look at that information, and that would naturally raise concerns, but it's inaccurate. Uh, and that is an example of the kind of information that we are flagging or raising. So a couple of the steps that we have, um, you know, that could be constructive for the public health uh, of the country are uh, providing uh, for, for Facebook or other platforms to measure and publicly share the impact of misinformation on their platform uh, and the audience it's reaching. Uh, also with the public, with all of you, um, to create robust enforcement strategies that bridge their properties and provide transparency about rules. You shouldn't be banned from one platform and not others uh, if you are for uh, uh, providing misinformation out there. Taking faster ac action against harmful posts. As you all know, information travels quite quickly. If it's up there for days and days and days, when people see it, you know, there's, it's hard to put that back in a box. And of course, promoting quality information algorithms. I don't know how they work, but they all do know how they work. Um, so those are some of the steps that we uh, think could be constructive for public health, for public information, uh, for public, uh, and you know, the right of the public to know. Basically, what she's saying is that they're going to be in talks with tech companies on what's considered misinformation. Um, if they if they deem something that is mis misinformation, they'll obviously be in touch with tech companies to take that information down. And they're also concerned that if someone gets banned or their account gets suspended from Facebook, for example, why isn't their, their account being banned or suspended from Twitter? So why aren't these tech companies talking together? So not only does she want tech companies to be talking together, but she wants those directions to be coming from government. So you have some of those powerful companies <laughs> in cahoots controlled by the government who is unable to, at least in America, uh, uh, restrict freedom of speech, but is using a private company where most of the discourse happens to crack down on speech. So it's a really dangerous, and, and this is where I think no one has any argument to say they're a private company, they can do what they want. Not really anymore <laughs> when you have the government telling you exactly what's considered misinformation and what's not, and you're using the private uh, the, the the private vehicle where it's legal to crack down on 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 misinformation, it's legal to censor. That's a, a, if it, if not a legal argument um, to violate the First Amendment. It's definitely you know happening in practice. And uh, I mean, I think everyone should be should be pretty concerned. Why it's so troubling is because maybe you could say if there's all this wacky you know, fringy anti-vax content online, you're in the midst of a pandemic, you need someone to crack down on misinformation. This is killing people. If people don't get the vaccine, lives are being lost. The issue with that argument is misinformation is in the eye of the beholder, right? I'm going to define the, the speech of people I don't like as misinformation and my own speech is fine. But obviously that presupposes that I'm free from error, I can never be possibly prone to um, to speaking something that um, that isn't true, which is obviously false. People are gonna people are gonna get it wrong all the time, no matter if you're a tech executive, no matter if you're a government official, no matter if you're some alternative health account. And I mean, we've already seen this in COVID, right? You, you know, in the beginning, everyone told us that masks didn't work. Then a few months later, we learned that, that was to protect the supply the supply of masks and that masks actually do work. And now as the pandemic has gone on, we've learned that maybe masks don't 
completely protect people from uh, new waves of COVID. Um, they could be like part of the response. The point is that, you know, as time goes on, your your idea of what's true actually evolves and changes. If you, if you, you can do the same with the, uh, the lab leak theory. In the beginning, it was considered fringe. Now it's considered very mainstream and there's a high probability that Wuhan did come from a lab. So the point is that no one ever has a monopoly on truth and can, can definitively say what is the truth, but rather all these talks about protecting people and protecting truth and cracking down on misinformation is really a guise for and a justification for uh, power and um, governments to prosecute their opponents. Yeah, another way of looking at it, Rob, is it was only just recently that the last president of the United States was and his press secretary were being admonished for lying constantly. Right. Right? So... Um, whether it was about coronavirus, whether it was about potential impeachment inquiries, whether it was about Russia, whether it was right. about how many so we people, know how many how people, many people in government are capable of lying. <laughs> <laughs> how many people you know about how many people were attending his inauguration? Right, we were being told that this is a lunatic uh, presidential state. If it wasn't for mm-hmm. the role of the media in that instance being able to communicate information that was against what was being preached by the White House, mm-hmm. uh, then in that situation, we would have they would we would have been uh, controlled and lied to. But in this instance, because it's not Donald Trump, because it's these establishment Democrats, they can be arbiters of what's true and what's not. It's not there's not some overriding principle that says it might be silly to mm-hmm. make the most powerful people in the country in control of information there's no governing rule it just seems to be who's in power and that seems to be pretty ill-guided in my opinion you just had a president apparently constantly lie imagine if he was in control of what information was allowed to be spread and shared on facebook that's exactly right and you need to fumble and make mistakes in order to arrive at something that's the truth right the process of uncovering the truth requires people to to have stabs at it in the dark and and there's a constant mechanism um you know of open exchange that eventually gets you to truth it's not people saying from the beginning this is mis- misinformation, this is disinformation, and this is the truth just, that gets you at the truth. And what and also like it's just it's just not representative of how any of these political institutions actually work. You know, while you were talking before, I was remembering about two elections ago in Australia, Malcolm Turnbull and uh, Bill Shorten mm. and Labor with like a week or two left in the election, just started spending a fortune running these ads <laughs> saying saying that the Liberal Party was going to privatise Medicare. Medicare, that's right. Right? Now, there was absolutely no evidence to this claim. Mm-hmm. It had ne- had, hadn't been spoken about as Liberal Party policy mm-hmm. for, honestly, decades. <laughs> like, it's just, <laughs> it's just, they might... And like Medicare is the um, is our version of, of health insurance in Australia. It's like our free our free healthcare system, universal healthcare. Yeah, right. Now the Labor Party just 
blatantly lied, spent millions on advertising um, to spread this lie and ended up doing enough damage to make Bill Short and uh, – sorry, to make um, Malcolm Turnbull mm-hmm. uh, lose just enough seats that he was, he was vulnerable and he sort of needed to form an almost minority government. Anyway, these people lie <laughs> so much. And, and I think what's been disheartening about this whole pandemic experience has been because these politicians – have constantly been standing next to these supposedly impartial epidemiological experts or mm-hmm. science experts or whatever else because they've been standing next Trust to these- the hashtag these, science. These, <laughs> these, these doctors. It's like our instincts and our to not trust them based on the grounded evidence that they lie constantly, mm. frequently- from both sides of the political spectrum mm-hmm. is problematic. And so on the one hand, you've had the highest level of distrust I think people have ever had in their politicians, right? I think like you know, the surveys over the last 50 years just show even before Donald Trump mm-hmm. that no one really trusted politicians, that everyone had lost faith in all these public institutions. Mm-hmm. Yet we're on the precipice of the most um, centralized, centralized draconian regulation of information nearly ever between governments mm-hmm. and and media outlets and i mean it's just mm-hmm. so yeah. it's it's that that seems like those two things shouldn't be happening at the same time <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, no, like it's, uh, <laughs> it's 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 super scary and then the identify and disrupt bill which is something that i that i mentioned earlier before basically is a bill that, according to this crikey article, human rights lawyers in the tech industry have criticized a proposed law that will would give law enforcement extraordinary hacking and surveillance powers after federal politicians from both major parties gave their support to an amended version of the bill. Um, there's an article from the Information Age, Australia is becoming a surveillance state, which is um, explains what it's going to do, which, you know, tell me if this doesn't terrify you. Once the bill passes, it will dish out extra power to the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, giving the agencies access to new warrants that will let them modify and delete data. That's right, modify and delete data, collect intelligence from online communities, and even take over the online accounts of supposed criminals. So George Orwell has just uh, <laughs> been resurrected from his grave, has has foreseen exactly what, what, what the government will try to do with, with – he couldn't have even foreseen the technology that would have, um, would have come about 80 years after his death and, and how the government would try to get its hands into it, and now they, um, now they actually are. And the idea behind it, of course, it's always going to have lofty goals. It's, that's the way it gets implemented. You know, they're cracking down on child exploitation, um, terrorism, you know, things that everyone is against. How could you, how could you, you know, oppose the bill, Aren't you against child exploitation? Aren't you against terrorism? And, of course, this is the same argument that any government would ever use to justify some sort of power is we've got to, you know, take down the thing that everyone hates without realising that they're going to use this power for, you know, other means. The fact that they can modify content online so they go into a potential platform or website and edit 
what someone said. I couldn't think of anything more Orwellian. I know the the George Orwell reference gets misused in like in modern society, but that is that is a complete new frontier for for censorship and for for government control. Yeah, it's not. It's like the way that you, the way that I conceptualize the philosophies that underpin limiting government, those philosophies and those principles need to stand true regardless of who the quality, regardless of the quality of of leadership or government, right? right. So that's what underpins, in my opinion, the principles of limiting government. It's it's not the problem in China isn't that the CCP suck and the Liberal Party or the Labor Party's great. That's not the problem. The problem is the available control to the CCP to mm-hmm. enact whatever agenda they want. Mm-hmm. Right? It's this idea that that ultimately incentives will always reward um, behavior, and so these governments always have an incentive to get more power. Mm-hmm. And also this idea that in the noblest of political visions, if you start pursuing it with too much power, you'll end up corrupted and, and fuck the joint. And it's like we don't seem to value those principles anymore, and there has been a clear bipartisan degradation in rights and limitations on the government to surveillance, detain, Mm -hmm. um, et cetera, really since 9-11 is when the Mm -hmm. floodgates opened up Mm -hmm. and you had, I guess, this critical concession on the right where the right of politics really stopped caring, especially in Australia, for these kinds of more old school liberal ideals of freedom and limitations mm-hmm. on government. Mm-hmm. And I guess you could point that to this close relationship, at least in Australia anyway, between military, tough on crime, mm-hmm. and the right wing. Mm-hmm. And um, and the fact that terrorism and nationalism was a real driver of these, um, these, in, these initial sort of anti-terror laws. Which were mm-hmm. the beginning of this of this surveillance state establishment, and then I guess now we're using the pandemic mm-hmm. and that crisis as a way to again. Well, that's exactly right. Even, even leaders who are potentially benevolent and you know who people love and people who would consider leaders of the people, Jacinda Ardern, New Zealand's Prime Minister, has come out and said, "We'll continue to be your single source of truth." have a quick listen. I've been watching for some days, and this is not unique to New Zealand, that in the midst of what is a global issue, as you would expect, there are a number of rumours that circulate. Uh, I am present on social media, I see it myself. Uh, I cannot go around and individually dismiss every single rumour I see on social media, as tempted as I might be. So instead I want to send a clear message to the New Zealand public. Um, we will share with you the most up-to-date information daily. You can trust us as a source of that information. Uh, you can also trust the Director General of Health and the Ministry of Health. For that information, do feel free to visit at any time to clarify any room you may hear. 
COVID19.govt.nz. Otherwise, dismiss anything else. We will continue to be your single source of truth. So you have Jacinda Ardern, the Biden administration, the Australian government, you know, people across the political spectrum, some have, you know, thought that this moment justifies a departure from normal legal norms and has 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 justified censorship and crackdown and this is why it's not acceptable even in an emergency and this is why you need to you know if you care about the principles that you care about they only really make sense they're only really worth fighting for when there's a potentially a really good argument against it right you you know you need to take it to the extreme you need to be in a pandemic to see who really believes in these principles otherwise um these people don't believe in the principles at all. And uh, there's generally shaky grounds. I mean, look at the history of the national security laws that were brought into Australia and what evidence is there that any of those laws made any functional difference in the prosecution and, of terrorists and the protection from terrorists? Do you know how those u- laws have been used against Rob? The ABC, ABC... Mm-hmm for successfully whistleblowing against the uh, Australian armed forces Mm -hmm. for human rights abuses Mm. and, um, and mass murders that resulted in a external inquiry of the SAS operations in Afghanistan that put forward that there was serious human rights abuses. And who were the federal poli- what were the federal police able to do under these national security laws? Confiscate all of um, the computers at all of these ABC journalist offices. And uh, the only reason the case was dropped was because it was literally up to the Attorney General whether or not it was in the national interest. And funnily enough, it wasn't in the national interest. Mm-hmm. To prosecute journalists for alerting us to the human rights abuses of our military. <laughs> Turns out that function of the press is actually quite helpful, but, but potentially politically inconvenient. Mm-hmm. And that's the point, potentially politically inconvenient. Mm-hmm. And so why is it appropriate for the Attorney General, former Attorney General, <clears throat> to be determining what is or isn't in the national interest in regards to the <laughs> whistleblowing against government operations. I mean, you're your own judge and jury. You and I have spoken a lot about this, about the need for some Bill of Rights, something that that's strong, something that's like the American uh, Bill of Rights and, and, and these <clears throat> inalienable rights that people can't take away, no matter how politically convenient it would seem. And Jules, one of those rights, which is something that's quite disturbed me watching from afar, maybe you can give me a first-hand perspective, is we've seen mass protests in Melbourne and Sydney over the last month against the lockdowns, against this COVID elimination policy. And of course, that gets merged in with all these colourful characters, these these anti-vaxxers, and you can you know fit anyone, anyone you want under that banner. But Dan Andrews saying that it is illegal to protest. His lockdown rules have made it illegal to protest. And then the thing that's, it would be one thing, it would be one thing for Dan Andrews to come out with this really strong approach because he's committed to his goal of eradicating COVID. I can, I can at least see the logic behind that. 
But what I don't understand is huge swaths of media, like both on the left and the right, The Age, The Guardian, The Australian, just condemning the right to protest in Australia. I I would have never have thought that the right to protest would be conditional in 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 my country. I don't I don't recognize it's not that I don't recognize the the country that I'm looking at. I I don't recognize how many intelligent people who I thought would be staunch defenders of human rights to just so blindly green light a government maneuver to crack down on the right to protest. So you have this editorial in the age that I'm looking at now. You know, most Australians would have been blissfully unaware of the large and angry crowds gathering on the streets of Melbourne on Sydney afternoon. Yeah, why are they angry? This has been a com- the most important political decision that has been made in, in my lifetime have been lockdowns. I, I don't think, you know, it's one thing to argue about tax policy. It's one thing to argue about carbon policy. It's one thing to argue about, um, you know, any other regulation. But, you know, the right to work, the right to free assembly, the right to so many fundamental freedoms has been taken away. And you don't think people have the right to protest that? And, you know, I was thinking about it. Is it the fact that Australia is so isolated that we have no, you, I'm not living in Australia anymore, um, have no comparison of how other liberal democracies have handled a pandemic? You know, yeah, or, yes. Or, yes, that's it. It's, it's all, all throughout Canada, all throughout Canada, there have always been protests. Our chief health officer and our premier have always said, we're going to respect the right to protest even in a pandemic, but please follow these health guidelines. And then to top it off, so you know, obviously these people are um, you know, said to be following guidelines, but then you get this weird double standard that it's okay to protest against racism last year, but not to protest you know, someone taking your right to work away. And like, I'm not going to get into the merits of protesting either one of those things, but just this virus doesn't transmit outdoors. There's been, I think, you know, n- not even a single recorded case of outdoor transmission in Australia. So the uh, the the weird justification that it's protecting people's lives just doesn't make any sense. I had someone share on Instagram. It was it was this was going around actually of some photo of some really quiet protest for Black refugee r- refugee oh, rights. Right. right. Recently in the last month and then the caption was all of those people who were protesting for our human rights must have just forgotten to show up. And then in my mind was like, I felt like replying, just being like, where were all the Black Lives Matter protesters? <laughs> or where were all the Invasion Day protesters? Like, yeah, well, exactly you know, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it's like, oh yeah, they they people pick and choose when they when they really decide to care about uh, a human rights issue, and it's like, yeah, they do, including. Uh, Including Black Lives Matter people and and Invasion Day people, so Australia doesn't have a doesn't seem to have any real connection to to liberal ideals anymore, and uh, it's almost a shame that that aspect of particularly the Liberal Party, you know, is just gone. Well, and it seems like politically, politically from as from as far as the state governments go, they've just um, seemed to have done tremendously well out of being unbelievably hardline, and part of that's been hardline against each other mm-hmm. so you know the the sort of the sort of politics has it's played well 
Brody and Hardline. Yeah. Has really played well. Well, I'll go back. I'll go back to what I said before, what I said at the beginning of, of the podcast, which is a really bleak outcome, is that even when Australia is at 80% vaccinated, COVID's still going to rage wild. Um, people, need to, people need to just look at Israel for that. And the day of reckoning is going to come where this stance has to end, where this it, 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 the completely draconian stance has to end. And, you know, Australians need to ask themselves, <laughs> are you happy with, you know, the complete trampling of, you know, yes. I mean, just human so rights and, and also and Australians don't understand, freedoms. and I would say I would say Victorians don't understand how severe our lockdowns have been to other parts of the world, right? So, no idea. Like, you know, so you know, no guests at your home wasn't even we. So we we were apparently not in lockdown three weeks ago. We weren't in lockdown. You just couldn't have anyone over at your house. <laughs> <laughs> it was just this normal, regular life. Without having anyone, being allowed to have anyone at your house, being a gathering of more than fucking 10 people outside and, and like it was, we were, we, we were, we were in lockdown before we were in lockdown. The, the non-lockdown we were in wouldn't, would have been the strictest lockdown that anyone in the, and the most of the rest of the world has actually faced. <laughs> <laughs> like, but that wasn't lockdown. Lockdown started two weeks ago. Um, yeah. Like we were already think, in lockdown. Now, now I, you know, I'm back to most people at the moment aren't even allowed to go to work um, unless you're an essential worker. I can't go to the studio on my own, whatever. Um, so I think generally there has been some sort of media, yeah, this word lockdown, what it actually means mm. and what how the rest of the world's going about dealing with this is uh, obviously it's been circulating through media, but I don't know, there's been this very weird... I just like, couldn't believe. There's, there's to no see, other way. There's no other way. Like I just, yeah, I, I just couldn't it's like, believe. It's like there's to no other way. It's like there's an no Instagram other way. post from the Australian shaming people for protesting, shaming for people to exercise their right for protest. When if there's anything that justifies a protest, it's having your income decimated, the right to see your friends and family taken away, the right to do because, just yeah, but, but, the, so, but literally the, argument- the right to normal life was taken away. Because it somehow was dangerous for you to attend an outdoor protest where there's virtually zero chance of transmission. So, okay. So, you're saying because the risk is so low, like what if the risk of outdoor transmission what, was really so, high? So, exactly. So, what if COVID could spread outdoors? I would say that even if there's a risk of harm, uh, the right to protest is unconditional. It's 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 the fundamental cornerstone of a democracy that you can express you can express your political opinion. We even have an implied right of political communication in this country. Australia doesn't have many constitutional rights, but something that very very extremely smart judges, some of the you know the most brilliant legal minds, the most brilliant minds in Australian society, implied a right to political um, communication in our constitution. Um, it's it's so fundamental to the functioning of Australia that to take it away is to fundamentally transform the nature of the country. And even if there is a risk of harm, if you used harm as the justification to bar someone's right to protest, any pretty much any political protest could have some harm because presumably you're um, protesting some harm that comes about from a policy, right? So if people are paraded you know, on, on Bell Street to protest against speed cameras because they're overly draconian, they're overly in people's faces. People don't want to have a speed camera flashing them when they go 45 kilometers in a 40 zone. You know, there's an argument that 
that law saves lives and protesting against it is going to cause harm. You know, the idea, again, I think this goes back to um, a previous part of our discussion where, you know, there's potentially a good argument to allow government surveillance because we could crack down on child pornography, child exploitation, um, you know, terrorism, all the things people hate. You know, again, a, a virus spreading uncontrolled is probably something that everyone hates, but you don't even give them the right to define what it is um, that makes a protest illegal because they're going to use it in in all different places and it's always going to be used in a way to um, tackle what's politically inconvenient rather than being some object, objective, rational standard. Yeah, which is why they didn't they didn't arrest any Black Lives Matter people, but they decided to arrest a shitload of these people exactly because right. they want they want the people who are actually um, arguing something against them. You know, they really want to crack down on them. And I mean, this is the other thing. It's like again, it's like I was talking to my sister about it. We've just come out of you know this like this huge widespread Black Lives Matter protest movement, which is seemingly an anti-establishment stance against mm-hmm. established power structures right mm-hmm. that's what it is isn't it mm-hmm. i mean isn't yeah. isn't this isn't the reason um black people have been so excluded from opportunities because those with power um are corrupt abuse them and are often white and, and male right right isn't that that that's so if we're really interested in disrupting and disturbing power structures, mm-hmm. we have to really care about who gets to approve or deny the validity of a protest. And according to the descriptions of power structures from this Black Lives Matter movement, the people who currently hold the right to determine the appropriateness of a protest mm-hmm. are corrupt white males right. on average. Wealthy and wealthy off the back of exploitative power. So I why why and you know, also these Black Lives Matter protests were constantly having the fight against I mean and uh, against all of the of the potential COVID risks, mm-hmm. right? And and we're, we're in this huge political battle um where people still wanted to keep protesting. It's it, just in Australia they did it like once or twice. Um, right. Once, but but they were massive protests. Right. You know, in America and stuff, they went on and on and on and on. But like the police that are killing Indigenous people in custody, right, are the same police that'll shut down your protest. Or will right? they're not forcibly arrest someone for walking in the park without a mask when there's right. you know, no one within a hundred meter vicinity. I mean, they're not. They're not. Yeah. It's not like you don't get. It's not. It's not like you know. It's just. It's you know. It's just the bad police. Uh, you know. It's like the, the the police can't be like good, bad when they're doing things you don't like, and then good when they're serving your own political interests. You know. And again, it comes right. to this idea of principles that are consistent regardless right. of who's in charge. And so, and I think there's um, hypocrisy on both ends, Jules. So you know, no one who's anti-lockdown would have necessarily been attending the Black Lives Matter protest and vice versa. So both- No, they could have been. They could have been. You could have easily could been, have been both. Yeah, potentially, potentially. But I think commonly when you hear someone who's on an anti-lockdown, within an anti-lockdown camp and someone who's in a BLM camp, it seems like they're, I think, 
you and I, yeah, Jules, this would is, be the ones <laughs> to, to protest against both. We're perfectly principled, of this course. Would be, this would but be, no, but this you don't is, see a this, lot of overlap. No, this think. is a really interesting, very strange cultural political divide that I think bots are playing a role in, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I kind of, since we spoke about bots, I kind of now want to go and, and do a lot more reading because I'm now convinced that there's just armies of bots mm. being used to create Division. false, false, false politics. But mm. I'm now convinced of this, Rob. I'm uh, the conspiracy juices are bubbling away. <laughs> no, this is this is really important to me. I don't think there actually is this idea that being anti-lockdown is um, like sort of white anti-woke. Mm-hmm. politics right. and then being for lockdown is um being for lockdowns being for masks being for vaccines is is woke i think that's definitely part of it and it's got to do with this 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 idea of liberty and that kind of i guess an old-fashioned conservative progressive um wrestle for civil liberties sure i think that is real but i think there's also a class divide on on these issues mm-hmm and I think there's a lot of people who, and this isn't being represented, there's a lot of people people that are actually working class mm-hmm. that are really struggling with this pandemic mm-hmm. and these lockdowns. And I also think if we want to look at vaccines, the underbelly that people don't want to talk about with vaccine hesitancy, which is an underbelly people generally don't like referring to mm-hmm. when it comes to other social issues, Mm-hmm. is migrant populations. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, mm-hmm. think, I think there's – I think migrants uh, have got nothing to do with right-wing, right-wing libertarian politics. Right. Have their own issues with this level of government infringement on their rights, being forced to take vaccinations, et cetera. And if you look at the UK, for example, mm-hmm. what, group, what groups are massively overrepresented in, in vaccine hesitancy? And they are African um, migrants, as well as migrants right. from other parts of the world. And and if you look at the states as well, what's who's the the group that's overly represented in vaccine hesitancy is the black population, um, right? And there's socioeconomic, and, and there are really good. There's a whole range of factors, isn't there? Right, you know, exactly you could, right. You could say because then, they're disadvantaged, they don't have as much access to healthcare, yeah, aren't as well educated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But really, you're talking about class People keep referencing divide. a botched uh, vaccine experiment in the past, which targeted blacks and led to a lot of side effects. I forget the name off the top of my head, but that actually brings me to the next point on vaccine passports, which, you know, it's interesting that you say, you know, the people who are vaccine hesitant are more likely to be disadvantaged. And I think that's that's true. When the topic was first brought up in the US, some of the civil rights groups, which remain the um, the ACLU, which has changed its tide over the past um, decades, it used to be like, you know, a vehement defender of the right for Nazis to show up at in Jewish towns uh, to protest, but now less so. But what it, it's still against vaccine passports, but it didn't necessarily cite freedom. It cited the disproportionate impact and issues of equity in that it would it would make black people second-class citizens by virtue of their higher 
vaccine hesitancy rates. So it's interesting that it's 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 no longer it, it can't give you a clear enunciation of civil libertarianism anymore. It has to go into equity. But that's a side it point. To go, it has to go into to net outcome as well. It has but, to look at woke issues, but. We now have vaccine passports in France. Uh, you can't attend restaurants, gyms, bars unless you have a vaccine. Uh, same in uh, New York City. California's thinking of doing the same, and that might increase as the Pfizer vaccine or some of these vaccines get proper authorization as opposed to emergency use. But this is where we're at. Jules, you think it's inevitable that Australia is going to introduce some type of vaccine passport? They've been oh, mate. We, we, people, chatting with people, the unions about it already. It'll be it'll be like demanded by the mainstream here. Like it'll just be like you're a fuckwit if you don't get vaccinated. <laughs> you know, and it's like a growing um, it's a growing uh, reality. I don't think people really care about people's right to choose. Unless you just be excluded and, yeah, you should just not be allowed to do things unless you're, you're participating in the uh, overall health effort. Well, I think, I think it'll absolutely be functionally enforced, you know, and it looks like the way the state government's going to try and do it is just basically put laws in place that create the infrastructure for private companies to functionally enforce the rules. Right. So it's right. like... So, and I think what's going like to happen is- Like we're talking about that, Facebook yeah. enforcing the government censorship. Sure. And so, it'll be like it'll be like the government will say, oh, no, if you're a gym, you're allowed to, like, I'm sure like high-risk industries will be like, it has to. And then everyone else, it'll be like, um, it's up to you. Yeah. And then if you if you don't enforce it, people aren't going to come and then you'll just get canceled. And I think that's one mechanism. Or we'll all just, you know, make it compulsory by law like they're doing in France or whatever. I mean- I don't know exactly what I think about this. If it is just a matter of restaurants deciding who can and can't attend their venues, if it is just a matter of, you know, workplaces, hospitals, any employer deciding who can and can't employ, you know, there's the libertarian instinct to say people still have a choice to do other things. I don't know when that argument falls down at which point those choices are so limited across society. So, Okay, I'm a I'm a tradie. I now have to quit my job because I don't want to get the vaccine. But I go from being a carpenter to an electrician. Oh wait, I, I also can't be an electrician. To, to being a plumber. Oh wait, I also can't be a plumber. Yeah, so Rob, th- this so, is, so your so choice what, what is your... functionally limited to very few pro- professions. And potentially and... just self-employment, and, and we know how well uh, the self-employed be... have done in the pandemic. Uh, you'll be, you'll be. Uh, there'll be some sort of revolutionary hippie underclass. <laughs> that will very quickly disintegrate into into the straggly true believers, because being being all for the universe's spirituality and being grounded and living pure. There's, I'm also convinced that a huge this huge hippie vaccine hesitancy movement absolutely just, just, yeah. just hides under the cracks. I think they this, hide I, under the cracks. I, I, all the osteos. I think it's wide open now. I think it's. it's, it's, it's I think the well, vaccine hesitancy in like the yogi communities is, is, oh, is mate. Some through of, the roof. Some of, some of the stuff my physio and osteo mates have been texting. <laughs> as far as they're concerned, they still don't think COVID's a real thing. You know, and these are like, <laughs> like and there's, there's lots of them. And um, speaking facts. You know, well, I don't know. I, don't, I, I, I think, I think, I think most people will just cave, Rob. You will basically not have any functional choice, and whatever principles there are around freedoms and liberties, uh, you know, whatever document that was in, 
right, has been set on fire that many times now, it just doesn't exist. Like this pandemic said unequivocally, your right to do basically everything is conditional. Welcome, welcome, welcome to 2020. I was talking, oh, this is very depressing. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if I capture this spirit of it well. So it was, I live with my brother and his, his best friend since he was in prep, Rob, Rob Di Lorenzo. And it was his, uh, it was his birthday. It was his 25th birthday last week. And his last two birthdays have happened in lockdown. And, you know, we were, we were getting loose. And uh, as you tend to do in lockdown, you, you talk about how it's affecting you. And it can be bleak. And what lockdown feels like, I think, is where your brain and your mind was previously able to drift to the infinite potential of things. Mm-hmm. And this idea that, oh, you know, imagine just like being in New York and the, the busyness of there and, and visiting here and going there and I can do this and I can, I can be there. This kind of inherent freeness, like the, the feelings you get when, you, when, you're at, when you're looking at the ocean and mm-hmm. your eye can't see anything further past than ocean. It's like this mm-hmm. would just be ocean. And unless mm-hmm. someone had told you that if you kept going in that direction, you'd eventually hit another continent. If you didn't have that piece of information, you just assume, well, that's infinity, right? Limitless. That 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 feeling is uh, is gone. You know, it's definitely gone. Mm. And you you for your brain to adjust to that is uh, is a type of poison. And we've we've now, you know, we've now had that taken from us, and um, we'll be desperate to have back whatever we can and people's desperation for relief is as well as this well-regulated and controlled narrative and coercive power of the government will mean people will just this will just happen at least in australia i just can't Mm. see I can't see any other way. And, you know, it is so important that we are able to feel like, feel like the world's an an amazing, huge place ready for us to see, you know? So, well, fancy believing that and wanting to act on that, but the right to protest that in the streets is now illegal. Well, yeah, it's illegal and it's council, it's, it's unwoke. So you, it's it's off brand, you know. If you were, you can't be at those can't be at those protests either. But uh, again, I think this is a very different situation amongst working class people. And I think like that kind of old school rock and roll perspective. My brother linked me some stuff like Eric Clapton, and that was Eric, Eric Clapton saying, does not like the vaccines. Are we talking Van, about Van under Morris. reporting of mm. the vaccine side effects? Yeah, yeah, Van Van because he had a really bad experience, and then Van mm. Morrison. Has been writing music, just like, what the f- There's just no fucking way the hippies would have stood for this shit. Woodstock was hosted in the middle of the Hong Kong flu. Yeah, well, and you know, and this is the other thing. It's like, okay, so we have in America black people being more hesitant to take vaccines. And it's like, is that surprising that, this huge group of society that feels totally mistreated, let down, exploited, and bullied by a system 
then doesn't choose to just trust whatever that system dictates. So, you know, is that playing a role? I think I saw a drummer I follow, very famous drummer, he caught COVID despite being vaccinated. And mm-hmm. he said something and it did spark that in me. He's like, look, I know you guys, I know there's a, he was really trying to get his black mates to, to get vaccinated. And he was like, I know you guys, we all feel there's justification to not trust these people, but you know, please just get vaccinated so you don't get really sick. Right. And it's like, well, this is, this is the question for all of us. We seem to all at once be able to, in our left hand, hold the realities of corruption and inequality and systemic abuse and, and uh, corrupt degradation of democracy. And we go, the world's not that democratic. No one's really, no one's wealth's really all that fair. And we've, you know, like we, we really believe this. And at the same time, in our other hand, we're um, going as hard as we can implementing what particular governments are saying is necessary for dealing with this pandemic. And so it's like total distrust and some sort of revolutionary change spirit. Mm-hmm. Take the power back. And then the other hand mm-hmm. is let's... Complicity, uh, compliance. Total, total, total and utter compliance and, and a whole new paradigm of of control and surveillance. You know, it's like if I was in China... And I was uh, at the freedom protests and I got all these people to show up to let's be our freedom protests. And then the next day, the CCP put through new surveillance laws. I'd be nervous. (laughs) But in that situation, it seems obvious. It's like, oh, but in this situation, for some reason, the cultural politics has actually brought those two two political visions together, you know. And it's it's um but look, hey, I'm in lockdown. I'm yeah. I'm just well, I'm, I'm just I'm overwhelmed yeah. with well, this dystopian. In the words of my mum <laughs> last week when I spoke to her, Rob, it's all fucked. <laughs> and I couldn't agree more, mum. <laughs> It's very dark, but I'm somewhat optimistic because I do think, at least here in Canada and the States, there seems to be this reluctance to go back into lockdown. We haven't we haven't surrendered all our rights. We've got all our pre-pandemic rights here in Alberta. I don't know if that will happen in Oz, but um, open the border with the States. We'll see how long that lasts, but there is some hope. I just think, look, it's a pretty bleak you know, trifecta, government censorship, taking away the right to protest. Vaccine passports implemented pretty universally, but there are a lot of people talking about <laughs> how insane it is. I I would be, I, I'm 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 hopeful that all of these things won't be <laughs> implemented <laughs> in their full form, and I think there yeah, is no, you're, potentially you're, you're, potentially something to to grasp onto. Yeah, and there's not <laughs> <laughs> like you're you're dreaming. So, and yeah, I just need to decide whether I'm going to be a part of this uh, this hippie underground movement uh, that uh, just exists on the fringes. I don't think so. I think I like playing music too much. But um. well, I think on that note, Jules, we will wrap this one up. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time.
I think they're all insane. And one final thing, if you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word and let your friends and family know about it. And also, if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, hit the like button and notification bell. See you next time.